My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Imagine adopting a baby with the full blessing of the child's biological parents, then later finding out that these individuals were living on the streets on a cold, rainy night in your city. Would you invite them to stay with you for a while? Writer Vanessa McGrady did just that and explored it and much more in her new moving book, Rock Needs River, a memoir about a very open adoption. I had the pleasure of meeting Vanessa when I flew up to New Haven, Michigan to record the Girl Boner audiobook last fall, and I knew within minutes that I would invite her to appear on the show. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I am so thankful that you're listening. Before we dive in, a quick reminder to sign up for occasional Girl Boner updates by email at augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org. Once a month, I share news about upcoming events, behind-the-scenes fun, lessons I'm learning, freebies, and more. This month, I shared an opportunity to pick my brain with one question by email. It's always something different, and I have to say, I love getting replies from folks. To take your sexual empowerment journey deeper, check out my book, Girl Boner, The Good Girl's Guide to Sexual Empowerment, available on Amazon and most anywhere books are sold. You can also pre-order Girl Boner Journal, a workbook full of true stories and exercises on Amazon. Later in the show, we'll hear Dr. Megan Fleming's thoughts for a listener whose Girl Boner has been MIA since having a baby three years ago, and a special invitation to an event Megan is a part of with her husband, Dave. In fact, you'll hear from Dave today, too. First, here's my interview with Vanessa McGrady, author of Rock Needs River. Thank you so much for joining me, Vanessa. How are you doing? I'm okay. It's kind of a wild time right now, but yeah. I'm, I'm so glad to be here, August. Oh, I'm so grateful that you could be. As you know, I loved your book. I had the privilege of reading an advanced copy, and it was interesting because when I got to the end and I thought of my initial reaction I would share with you, I hadn't read the description yet, which says it's a love letter to your daughter, and that is what I wrote down, that it that it felt like a love letter to your daughter Grace and a, a testament to to love and, and what family really means. I'm so glad you got that because that's really how it started and that's really what it is. So thank you. Thank yeah, you for that. absolutely. And thank you for writing it. I really admire the way that you share your personal journey, not only through the open adoption process, but your journey to becoming somebody who wanted to have a child and um, dating and all different kinds of relationships. And I thought you shared really honestly and you didn't shame anybody. And, and actually, you were very transparent about everyone in a relationship having a role in the good and in the reasons they don't work out. Um, you know, I just... I just feel like, well, and with the writing of the book, too, and just writing about relationships, really, any time that 
you can take the hit for something that goes along goes wrong in a relationship or even writing about relationships like I will take the hit I will always make myself the asshole if you know and I will be generous about that because I do feel like it is definitely a two-way street there's two people in there you know sometimes more if it's a family or a bigger dynamic but I just feel like you know both people are there and it's it's often not just one person's fault. It's so true. And you really do. If if there's anybody that you're a little bit hard on, I feel like it's you. But not in a not in an overboard kind of way. I just feel like you're somebody who seems to constantly actively learn and seek to learn from people around you. Is that how you feel? I do. I do. I mean, that's that is how we learn is from things that go right, but also more often than not things that go wrong. So, for example, when I wrote about my marriage, um, I did get married with the intent of being married forever. And we were in love and we were very happy. And then but but I didn't have the tools to stay married and I didn't have the the love vocabulary and I didn't have the respect and I didn't have all of the things that I needed to stay married. And I'm I'll put that on me. Just the the staying married part, whatever the behavior was of my ex-husband, like I he probably would would be in it today, you know, eight years later. But yeah. yeah. And you because you also share about your childhood somewhat, too, and your growing up process, it sounds like you also credit your parents for a lot of your really wonderful qualities. And you say that, you know, they didn't stay together. Your your father, who you were very close to, was married Two or three times? Yeah, he was married twice. Yeah, okay. and then he had a very long-term relationship um, at the end. So that I, I probably learned more from that than, than anything else. What do you remember learning about sex and relationships? I know your father's relationship and the way he treated you is very different from the way he treated other, perhaps, females. Yeah, so, so I grew up in the 70s, which was not only the me decade, but it was also a huge decade for sexual liberation and sexual empowerment. Um, and so the combination of that really, I, I feel like put my my father's um, sexual needs and sexual being and just who he was as a person in front of a lot of other things, including being a father. And so, you know, that those are the that's what people were doing back then too. So I'm not saying that's just him, but that really was kind of the the ethic that was happening and the culture that was happening at that time, especially in New York City, where I grew up. Um, and so I did learn, you know, that that sex is important. I did learn that love is important. That's something you chase. That's something that you want in your life. I don't ever remember him being single for very long. I just, I'm just thinking of this right now, but I don't ever remember him being single for very long. Um, and I myself am probably a serial monogamist as well. Um, I learned that, uh, and this is from some negative messaging from my father, and this was for, this was really for other people, but it did sink in that you have to look a certain way to be lovable. So there's a story I have in the book where we are at a restaurant and we're just, you know, where I'm probably about 14 or so. My brother is there. My father is there. And the waitress comes and she asks if we want anything else. And of course, we've made just like huge mess at the table. Like we always did like all kinds of like flotsam and jetsam along the table. And and um, she was very nice. 
She walks away. My father looked at her and he said, with calves like those, no one will ever marry her. And that's just a very tiny, tiny message. I call it micro bullshit. And these little, little tiny messages that you get throughout your life from advertisers or from other people or from your parents, that they, they're like particles that make waves. And they inform a lot of who we are and how we think. And, and, and I feel like this message that I got is that you have to be a certain way. Um, you have to meet a certain standard of beauty. You have to have a certain body in order to be lovable or in order to be marriageable. Mm. And that's a whole other thing, marriageable. Like, what does that even mean? You know, who, you know, what's, right. what's so great about being married? <laughs> right, <laughs> that know? it's like kind of an ultimate goal for a lot of people and an expectation still. You know, when, it's not if, it's when. Exactly. For sure. So did the messages, all those, the micro bullshit, did that impact you in significant ways? Would you say that you struggled with body image and things like that? Or were you able to kind of you know, kind of move past that? Well, you know, I feel like my dad, also we something else that's important to know, we grew up mostly with my father. My father had custody of us. We saw my mother on vacations and on weekends, and we also moved across the country. So really, my primary influence was from my father. Um, what was your question? <laughs> Sorry. So body so, image. Yeah, wise. body image. Yeah. yeah. So I, you know, I have struggled with body image. I'm I'm not a very large person. I would say I'm just a, I'm an average person. You know, I like I but I did I have had that uh, that problem when I was in Seattle in the early 2000s. I actually did a, a multimedia show with uh, film with a play and with photography on body image because it was just something that I feel like so many people struggled with but nobody had really pronounced at that time yet and and since then there have been some amazing ad campaigns and Dove has done cap campaigns and major major brands have done campaigns but yeah I I definitely have in my life I have equated my lovability with how thin I am or how I look or am I conventionally pretty or you know things like that so so I think, yeah, I did not escape that, even though my father did impress upon me that I can be whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. I'm smart. I, you know, go for it. Aim high. You know, I wasn't really lumped in with other women sure. as a group. But, but you still absorbed it. But I absolutely I think it's very it. hard to escape that, even if you are in a bubble where your own little space is very positive. It's really hard. It's really hard. And I, I love that you share about that in the book because I think it's a really important message people can relate to. Very early in the book, you talk about the fact that becoming a mother wasn't your immediate, it wasn't an immediate priority in your 20s. Um, I'm wondering when that started to change for you. I would say probably in my late 20s. I don't know if it was psychic or biological or a combination, but I really, really started to feel the pull of wanting a child. But I also never felt like I was in a good enough space. I wasn't partnered enough or I wasn't wealthy enough. And, you know, for part of that time, I lived in a little cabin in the woods off the grid and I peed in a tomato can and I, you know I would like have like there would be coyotes and you know a bear came and took a poop on my coffee table you know like I wasn't set up that to have a kid for real? that didn't did oh really gosh. happen you know and I I just yeah I just wasn't set up to but I wanted it but I didn't know how to get it and I didn't know how to be in a relationship to have that so did it feel like that clock I 
Because I grew up feeling like I didn't have that urge, but I thought it might just hit me someday. Is that how it felt? Did you feel like you didn't really have that sort of strong desire and then all of a sudden was it very strong right away? You know, it was it was someday, someday, someday. And then two years, two years, two years. And then once I was in my 30s, my mid-30s, I'd moved to California. Then I just really felt more hungry for that and more focused on that. And that was, and and I did get pregnant in my um, very early 30s. And that really cemented it for me. I miscarried at 12 weeks. And that was a very devastating miscarriage for me because, you know, by 12 weeks, you're supposed to be safe. And then, you know, suddenly I'm sitting on the toilet and there's all this, you know, blood coming out and Mm -hmm. I'm cramping and I'm, you know, turning translucent. And I really had gotten attached to this idea of having a baby. And so that did solidify it for me. So it wasn't so much two years, two years, two years. It was like, when, when can I make this happen? When is this optimal to happen? It was such a powerful part of your book. It was so well-written and heart-wrenching and important. I feel like it's a very common experience. It doesn't get a ton of light, the the details of what it's like to go through that. So I appreciate that you shared it. Was that did that feel vulnerable to you to share? Um, you know, I I feel like I at this point, I don't really have that filter. I just feel like I just I don't have very many secrets. I can't even think of any secrets at this point. <laughs> yeah. And um and so I just, you know, I just felt like I was just telling what happened and telling it like it is. And, you know, I think I think when we do tell our stories and we do tell our very, very personal stories, I think we connect with other people who have similar experiences as well. Absolutely. Was the desire to become a parent, did that play a big role in your kind of perceived readiness or desire to get married? That was a around a similar time? It did, yes. So um, so I had been dating Peter, and he was done having children. He had a vasectomy. He already had children who were teenagers and a son who was grown. And But he was, he was on board, and he was, you know, he was ready to do that. We had a couple stops in the middle of it. He wasn't sure, but then he got back on the train, and I was I had started the adoption process by myself as a single person, and he, you know, to his credit, he got back on and he just did all his paperwork and his background checks. And together, exactly, this is crazy, exactly nine months after we got married, our baby came. Whoa. So, (laughs) yeah. And this is like after like two years of waiting, you know, on my own, but but exactly nine months. Wow. Yep. That's amazing. Why was it important to you or why did it seem appealing to go the open adoption route? You know, that's actually what people do now. It's very, it's it's much more rare to have a closed adoption. It's uh, healthier for everybody involved. So obviously healthier for the child to understand their origins and understand their roots. There have been so many studies that show that just the mental health of the child is better because, you know, people do want to know where they came from, even if it's not someone they grew up with or not someone they ever thought about. People need to know that. That's their, that's a soul calling is to understand that. It's better for the birth parents to know how their child is. Did they make a mistake? What's happening with that child to be connected in some way for not all birth parents, but for, for many birth parents. And it's also important for the adoptive parents to 
to, you know, have that relationship, to be able to ask questions, to understand. I mean, I personally just feel the more that I understand of my daughter's birth parents, the more I understand her and the more I can help her. Mm. That's really powerful. That makes a lot of sense to me and seems like it would help with if you grow up with a lot of questions about your identity, I imagine that would be very difficult. It is. I mean, you I there and you know, every person is different, every adoptee is different. Some people don't have that curiosity, but but many many of them do and it is their right to understand where they came from. Could you share what it felt like to get the call? I believe you were at work and it had been like a couple of years. There's paperwork, all these processes you're going through, and you get a call. There's a a young woman who's pregnant. I just got goosebumps because I just was reading this again, and I just – I got so excited for you. (laughs) But what did that feel like? Probably mixed emotions. You know, it's – it's kind of like time slows down. When you meet your fate, you don't always know it, whether it's good fate or bad fate. You know, if you're, say, you know, meeting the person who you're going to be with for the rest of your life or whether you're winning a prize or getting a job or, you know, what it is. Like, you, it just slowed down for me. We got a, I got a call at work. Um, I didn't know that it was she was going to say yes at that time, you know, but I made sure, you know, that – you know, do I look like a responsible adult? You know, am I wearing grown-up clothes? Do I, you know, come across as someone who would be a good person to hand off your baby to? You know, and I just really wanted to know Bridget when we met her. Bill was working at that time, so we went out to, we got the call. We met her that evening for dinner. Um, You know, I just really wanted to know her. I instantly felt a kind of a love and a caring for her. Um, it was just such a vulnerable situation. She and Bill, who they were dating at the time, but now they're married. Um, it was just such a vulnerable time for them. They were not working very much. They They had just met too, hadn't they? They had just met. So they got pregnant. She came from Ohio and got off the bus. And then, you know, probably a week later or so she got pregnant. And they had been online friends on MySpace for quite a while. And they, they had known each other that way. And then she came out to L.A. And and um, so, they, you know, they were in a precarious position. They wanted to be musicians. She was not working. He was working at a pizza hut. Um, they, you know, they just were in no way ready to do that. And they needed a family for that baby. And, and fortunately, thankfully, they, they chose us. Out of all the people they could have chosen, they chose us. And from that point, from meeting to actually it becoming official, roughly how much time and and was that a grueling process or did you kind of ease into it? Oh, girl, we had four days. (laughs) Four days? Yeah. yeah. Um, Bridget was hugely pregnant. I mean, she was like, she's this, you know, like, like thin, thin woman with uh, the basketball on her tummy and she had this white coat and it was like stretched, you know, the buttons were straining and it was, you know, stretched to the limit and... And um, so we met her on a Thursday, and Grace was born on a Tuesday. So it was like being pregnant for two years, but also like being pregnant for four days. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And didn't she not—they didn't even know quite exactly how pregnant she was. There were a lot of questions around it. They just said, she's very pregnant. Right. So they thought that the baby should have been coming sooner, but she also hadn't had a lot of prenatal care. So there, you know, wasn't 
a lot to go on that way. So wow, yeah, wow. So you're two years and four days of pregnancy later. <laughs> you met Grace. I met my baby girl for the first time. Yeah, she. Um, I went to the hospital. I was. I had gone on this business trip because again, like nobody was sure when she was going to be due. So. I went on a business trip and then I, you know, we got the call and then I'm, you know, leaving San Jose airport and, you know, doing like the classic running through the, through the airport and trying to hold the plane and my baby's coming and ma'am, excuse me. And, and, um, but I, you know, got off the plane, my friend brought me to the hospital and there she was, she was just, you know, in the, they have these clear plastic bins basically right next to the bed and she was there and she was fussing a little bit and and my husband had already had gotten there before me and he said meet your baby and he just got to hold her and she stopped crying and it wasn't a big it wasn't fire it wasn't fireworks it wasn't birdsong it wasn't (laughs) you know like angel angel heart music from somewhere over there it was just a very like knowing quiet moment that Mm. you know this is my life now and Mm. this is my child now wow at that time could you have anticipated the journey ahead so many unconventional things ended up happening through this process what what were you thinking about moving forward what was were you super focused on the now or did you have sort of expectations or concerns or hopes that were at the forefront I can't, I mean, I really just wanted to like understand, like, I don't understand how I'm going to do the dishes and sleep and, you know, (laughs) like keep this child alive and, you know, keep myself fed. It was just, I don't think you, I mean, you can read a hundred books on having a baby, but the only way you can really learn to be a parent is to just do it. Yeah. And you, you did, you just dove in. So now you're a parent and you're adjusting to keeping the baby alive and also doing, and, you know, and you're working too. There's so much going on outside of the home. And you, so you stay in touch with Bill and Bridget and they're very much, you know, a part of your life. Um, but at a certain point, they were really struggling financially and they were homeless for a time. And you ended up opening your home to them. It was very interesting reading about that decision, and I think most readers will feel compelled to ask themselves, could I do that? Like, do I have that same generosity? Because it's it's really incredible. I think it really speaks of your heart that you were so open and loving and you fundraised and you made all these different efforts to to try to be supportive. Was that a difficult decision or was it something that just really just felt like this is what I need to do. You know, I I appreciate you saying all of that, but I don't, I just feel like it was a very simple thing. Like if someone, you know, was homeless and it was raining and freezing, would you let them go out and sleep in a tent? Right. I mean, I, I don't, I think you would not. And I think most people. Yeah. I'd like to think I would not. I, I would like to think I would not for yeah. sure, especially it, if yeah. they gave you an unrepayable debt. You know, like I feel yeah. like I, I can never, ever repay what they have done for me by making me a mother. Mm. I also really appreciated that you shared, again, similar to your romantic relationships where you can see them and you can see 
the the beautiful strengths and the goodness and you also see things that maybe you did in a way that wasn't like ideal or or vice versa and you talk about you were trying to offer them support in ways that felt right to you right, right? i mean i have very like middle class white girl ideas of like well if i were homeless I'd want to learn how to get a job. Or if I were homeless, I'd want to sign up for the clinic that is free and that can fix my teeth. You know, those kinds of things. And so those are the the things that I tried to help them with. But I also have learned since that that's not, I mean, if they if they had that system of thinking, they probably wouldn't be homeless. Like they've made other choices. They When you are homeless, you, you know, for them, you know, for, for me personally, like being homeless would probably be like the bottom, but for them being homeless was the next step to getting free housing or something through the VA. So it's just, I mean, I just have to say it's just a different system of being and a different system of thinking and the things that are important to me were not as important to them. Yeah. Yeah. Very well stated. Yeah. It was interesting because I feel like that was a nice glimpse into another way of life that a lot of people who are middle class or who would just not who have never been like broke 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 or or homeless might uh, be able to to learn a bit from and you shared about their personal journeys too and even some about you interviewed them about their whole lives which felt like such a treasure trove to me I even think you know, having not been adopted, it would still be really cool if I had a book where my parents, you know, talked to people about their journeys, people who I'm connected to. I just thought that was really neat. Was that something that you wanted to do specifically for Grace? Yeah. I mean, I've I've also had, you know, the reality is that Bill and Bridget and I have not always been in contact. So there's been, there have been times where we have and we haven't. And you know, I never know, is this the last time we will see them or is this the last time we will talk to them? And so I do feel like Grace is not that curious right now, but one day she may be very curious. And so I have these things for her um, so she can, you know, she can call on them if for some reason they, you know, aren't aren't in touch with her. So, yeah, yeah, that's that seems really reasonable, a really wise decision. I feel like a lot of people, when they think about open adoption, at least I've heard people say this, and you would know much better, but it seems like a common concern is what if they want the child back? Is that something that comes up in the community of open adoption that people are concerned about? Did it enter your... You know, it's a that's almost like a movie thing. Like, a, you, you know, like I, I cannot speak for all birth parents. And I'm sure, you know, I, I do know it is an excruciating, excruciating decision. And, you know, there may be regrets and there may be all kinds of feelings around that. But at least for our adoption, they never, ever made me feel like they would change their mind. And there also are processes that you take. So there certain states have different rules about, you know, how long the parent, the birth parents do have to change their minds. And so, there is that waiting period where it's um it's kind of like a limbo period before they are officially irreversibly adopted which is probably a really smart thing to make the process take time you know so that people are really sure and as you were saying that i was thinking pretty much every decision 
any big decision may or may not involve regret. Yeah. And I mean, this is also the place where I want to call for a much better system to take care of our indigent, our poor people who, I mean, I don't think that economics should really play that much of a part in adoption. I feel like, you know, there are so many families that could be so much better supported, you know, through prenatal care, through medical care, through early childhood education, through daycare. So that doesn't become part of the equation for deciding to give up your child for adoption. I mean, we should just do such a better job as a society and as a country to remove those obstacles. I mean, not everybody wants to parent and not everybody is set up to parent. And there are some very, very good issue, good reasons why people shouldn't be parents or be around children. But because they can't afford it shouldn't be one of them. I didn't even realize that that was such a big factor. When you say because they they couldn't afford it. So you mean people feeling like they own, that's their only option? Yeah. If, I mean, I, I, I think there are other reasons at play for Bridget and Bill. Right. But and they didn't they were not ready to parent and they did not want to be parents. But there was also this economic part of it. And that shouldn't be. It just shouldn't be part of it. We should support families. Absolutely. Period. Yeah. Period. Absolutely. At first, I thought you were talking about the economic factors involved with the actual adoption process. Was Is that a consideration? That is also a well? consideration. That's probably more on the other side, though. That's not so much decide. So, yes, the economics of deciding to place your child for adoption, but also there, there's an average. It's about an average of $43,000, I believe, is the cost of the average private adoption. And there's other ways you can go. You can go through a nonprofit like I did, which was not nearly that expensive. You can go a foster adopt route, um, which is also riskier because you may the child may be reunified with his or her family. Um, and there's also the $80,000 lawyer, attorney, private placement. And it shouldn't I don't I just don't think people should be making money on adoption. I know there's legal fees involved, but honestly, like. That, that's creating a have-and-have-not situation. Um, there's a wonderful organization I'm going to plug right now called HelpUsAdopt.org, and they give grants to couples that want to adopt, and they still need a little bridge funding to, to do that. But I, I, hope, I hope one day there's no need for that organization ever because people shouldn't be ma- getting rich off, off adoption. Absolutely. I completely agree. What was the most surprising part of the adoption process for you? Oh, my gosh. It just was all so surprising. Um, I guess I would just have to say how gracious Bill and Bridget were. And they were very, um, they just never really gave us any reason to think that they would change their mind. And that that was surprising to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, And what was the smoothest part of it? I guess just becoming a mom, you know, and loving that girl and loving her instantly and just, you know, having this understanding with her that she that we were supposed to be together. She seems like such an incredible kid. I love the little anecdotes you share about her throughout. Is there a particular story that you especially love from either from the book or just an anecdote that stands out as this is so grace? Um. Let's see. Well, this is so 
so we have a system of play and she has created sort of this alternate reality for us and it's called puppy school but really what it is it's we're sort of these princesses who are sisters who are in a boarding school and she gets to be Rose and I have to be Doze. Unfortunately, my name is Doze. <laughs> that cracks me up so and, much. <laughs> did she choose those names? She did. She did. Yeah, she mom, chooses, you're Doze. Yeah, I get to be Doze. And so, so like throughout our our time in this princess boarding school, like like she gets like the A's and then I have like a D, or she gets like she has paparazzi following her in this in this boarding school, but I don't have anybody, but I get to drive her. So she's like really gets to, you know, she, and, and I love how she's sort of like, well, you know what, she's a little kid and little kids don't have a lot of power in real life, but you know, in this alternate reality, she does. And so that's actually one of my favorite things about Grace is she gets to like direct herself you know, and she gets to win every time. <laughs> she's so imaginative, and you point out her confidence too. Yeah, she's very yeah, she's very confident. Like um, one time, we went on this road trip to to through Oregon up to Washington, and she would just like she'd like go up and talk to people. Like, so we were in Ashland, Oregon, which is one of my favorite places, and she'd just say, "Don't forget, my birthday is June seventh, and you know, to like a just perfect strangers, and then you know things like. Um, like, a, we were at this rest stop, and she's like, hey, my mom's gassy today, you know, <laughs> like, oh my things gosh. like that. So, you know, she's very shy, but, like, every now and then she'll just, like, start talking to certain people. And That is amazing. Yeah. How old was she? She was probably about four, I think, at that time. <laughs> yeah. That is so incredible. Yeah, yeah, she's wow. funny. At what point did you decide that you wanted to write this book? Um, you know, when Bill and Bridget were staying with us, I felt like it was a big story, and um, I wanted to tell it, and I told it in the New York Times um, in the parenting blog. At that time, it was called Motherload. Um, and it got, I was surprised at the reaction that it got. So it got some good reaction, but also, I mean, it was across the board too. There were a lot of people who don't like adoption, which I had no idea, but it's it's people who do feel, you know, who did not have a good adoption experience um, or, you know, birth parents who felt like they were forced into an adoption, you know, whether it's from an institution like the Catholic Church or um, their parents or, you know, other family members or just they were like up against a brick wall, didn't have any support. Um, And then adoptees who had who just didn't have good family lives and felt like they probably would have been better off with their original family or their original kin. So that was very eye-opening to me and very sad to yeah. me yeah, as, a, I imagine. as a result of that. And then I just, um, you know, I just kept being a mom and we kept having this, you know, relationship and it became bigger as a book. Yeah. And you were already a writer, of course. Right. So it probably felt pretty natural. But it does feel, it feels brave reading it. It sounds like you're very comfortable, as you said, no secrets. Did, have you, like leading up to publication, Did were you nervous? Did you have butterflies? Was it really comfortable as far as like my, my story's really getting out there? Yeah, I, I wasn't so much nervous for myself, um, but I still am a little bit nervous about, you know, when I write about other people, you know, and I really had to really check this stuff. Like, is this fair? Is this kind? You know, and there's also that Anne Lamott thought, which is, you know, if people wanted you to write warmly about them they should have behaved better that's that's a paraphrase but um (laughs) yeah but basically so you know there's powerful yeah and so so i i you 
as she also says, is you own everything that's happened to you and you own your own story. So this is my this is my story, the most truthfully I can tell it, you know, and also, like I said, I'll make myself the asshole every single time if I can. Um, but I do, you know, I, I didn't want to hurt anybody or I didn't want to, you know, and I, but I also tried to be truthful about my family. Um, and my, my mother read it and she, there's a part in it where I say that um, when I visit her, the, it's, it's intense. And I also, I like to have somebody with me to kind of diffuse that intensity. And she did ask me about that. Like, what do you mean? But I really just, you know, I told her it's, it's my own inability to process the intensity. It's not because of who she is or what she's saying. It's because I just don't have that tool to do that. So and how did she receive that? She th- she was cool. She thought it was great. Awesome. She liked the book. So I was I was happy that That's she liked so it. That's so great. Yeah. That's so great. I thought you did a wonderful job of presenting other bringing other people into your story. I didn't feel like you were telling other people's stories. You were shedding light. And you even, when you talk about Bill and Bridget, there are times when I felt like you were narrating for them. You know, it just felt like you wanted them to be able to speak within it. Um, I, I never felt like you were trying to like, you know, as you said, you didn't want to hurt anyone. And it was it was honest and uh and yeah, I think brave because I think people do get nervous about those very things. Um, people, whenever we put something out there too, people will judge us and through the lens of their own experience. So that can be challenging, but I just, I applaud you for writing it. What's, would you say is one of the biggest goals for you as far as readers receiving this book? What would you like them to take away? I would say I would like to have readers um, understand the nuance and the enormity of placing your child for an adoption and what that is and how difficult that is. Um, birth parents are often maligned. Um, they, I've talked to several of them who don't even tell people they've placed an adoption or placed a baby for adoption because they, they're seen as monsters by a lot of people. How could you give up your child? You know, especially if it's, you know, maybe 20 years later and they have more of a stable life and they do, you know, seem to appear to be able to parent, but I just I hope that people truly understand what a big decision that is, and you know what goes into making that decision. Yeah, I certainly learned a whole lot. I think you did that really effectively. It's also it's very witty. It's so well written, and it's it feels like a friend you want to keep hanging out with when you're not reading it. That's how I felt. I really I just looked forward to when I was breaking away from it. I was so excited to come back to it because you feel like you're living the story and you've had a really adventurous life. It probably feels very normal to you. But for me, it just felt your your whole journey has been really, really interesting to me. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I'll hang out with you even when you're not reading the book really? if you want. Yeah. Awesome. We, ha- we haven't done that yet. So <laughs> I, know. I know. I'm excited. We've yeah. like only known each other through our, our books. Um, speaking of which, you recorded and narrated the audiobook. What was that experience like for you? It was a little harrowing, I will say. And I don't know if this is the same for you, August, but um, but for me, it was, you know, like really a, a kind of scrutiny, like, a, and I had read it out loud before because they, they were kind enough to tell me, you know, maybe you want to do this and change anything because it's going to be too late to change things. And there were a couple times where I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I had that in there, you know, or You know, really, it's like if you ever want to like nitpick 
that's the time that's if you ever want to just really like punish yourself for minutiae <laughs> that's that's the way to do read, it yeah. read your book out loud yeah read yeah. your book out loud it made me basically want to read everything out loud that Seriously, I've ever it's a do. completely different experience it is. yeah I read it my book to my dog several times <laughs> to the point that I think she was just like really again but it it's completely different it really is so but sitting down and actually doing it you have um a passion for performing, maybe from your mother, who was a ballerina, right? And she was. A, she would correct you and say, "Prima ballerina." Prima We're ballerina. Not a, <laughs> excuse me. Yes. I don't know my ballet <laughs> yeah. lingo very well. Yeah, yeah. So she was a. Yeah, she yeah. was a prima ballerina. Yes. So yes. did it feel like you were performing? It did. I mean, you you definitely. I mean, I didn't want to be boring, and I didn't want to be over the top. Yeah. And you know, I hope you know, I hope it's listenable. I'm people, sure it you know? is. I'm really excited to listen to it. Thank you. Yeah, I really am. So you have an event coming up in New York. Tell us about that. I do. I have a reading on February 21st at Shakespeare and Company on Lexington. There's a few different locations. So it's it's either 6 or 6.30. But, um, but I'm very excited to read and to sign books and to see my New York friends and anybody who wants to come say hi. And if people want to learn more about you, or I know you have a newsletter, so people can kind of stay in the pulse of things, people can follow you on Amazon. I did that today. Oh, thank you. Yeah, VanessaMcGrady.com. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me. Any last words of wisdom for somebody who is brand new to the adoption process or maybe just considering it? What would you say? I would just say start talking to people. Start talking to anybody you know who's who's adopted and you know, make your phone calls, and the more you learn, the, the better off you're going to be. Find Rock Needs River, a memoir about a very open adoption on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your favorite indie bookstore, and most anywhere books are sold. Today's listener question ties into this topic of parenting and addresses a pretty common issue. It comes from Paula, who wrote this. I'm literally too tired to have sex and have been since having a baby three years ago. My baby's very active and hardly ever naps. I'm a stay-at-home mom and run a business part-time, and I'm lucky if I get six hours of sleep most nights. I feel like I've forgotten how to want it, meaning sex. My sex drive used to be higher than my husband's, and now it is completely MIA. He never complains, and I know he's exhausted too, but I still feel like I'm letting him down. I feel like less of a woman. Paula. Paula, thank you so much for your thoughtful question. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Paula, thanks so much for your question. And I can say that you're asking this for almost every mother out there with young children um, under the age, even probably five, that... um, just the physical demands, uh, as well as, as you're referring to, just getting the sleep in. And as we know, sleep is really the foundation of everything. And so part of me just wants to normalize that this isn't talked about enough, um, that you know we bask in the pleasure of having children, but the reality is it's a lot of hard work. And you know, I think most of us can identify that before you had children, you kind of felt like you had no time. And then once you have children, you're like, oh my God, you can't even imagine that you used to have that time because then you literally feel like you have no time. And so, you know, I think it's important to understand that, again, this is very common and that it doesn't have to be this way because you do remember, and it's fantastic, that you had a you know, a high drive and enjoyed, you know, the feeling and the meaning of sex. And so I guess I want to normalize the fact that 
right now, you know, those conditions for sex aren't being met, which really starts with the being rested and relaxed. And, you know, sleep, again, as I said, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, what comes first. And for most people, they, men and women, they would say in this age of life that it's not uncommon. They you know, their head hits the pillow and they fall asleep. So when you're that exhausted and your body's telling you how exhausted you are, the reality is, of course, sleep is coming first on the radar, even above sex. Um, and that being said, over time, because this is now three years in, you've probably, in a sense, turned that off. Um, and this I often see, especially when there's a lot of uh, desire discrepancies between couples. It's not uncommon that the higher libido partner sort of stops um, masturbating or even, you know, sort of shuts down their own sexuality so that there's less, in a sense, pain and the frustration of, you know, not having the intimacy and sex with one's partner. And so I sort of say it's like you've become a cold engine. Um, and it's like not, it's generally not even on your radar. So the fact that you're asking this question is great because that means on some level it's on your radar. Um, but I think most of us in these times could be running on empty. Um, and I often hear women say it's almost like too much touch, that by the end of the day, all those sort of touch needs and for intimacy connection have almost been met by, by their kids. And yet we all know that is not the same kind of intimacy feeling of pleasure that we receive from our partners. And so, you you know, you hear me say it all the time. Self-care is not selfish. That is the reason they say to put the oxygen mask on yourself first in the airplane. And, you know, when I say self-care, sexy time is a part of that because, you know, sexuality is, in my mind, very much being connected to your vitality. And, you know, the ability to feel pleasure in our bodies, you know, is, I think, you know, key to, you know, having a great life. And so I think that, you know... I come back to where I started. It's great that you're thinking about it. And then if it is your priority, which it sounds like it is, then you make it as such. And, you know, as I always say, the order is start with yourself, refill your own tank. Then it is your marriage partnership. And then it's children. And I know that may seem counterintuitive to some because often I think these days people put their children first. But in order to really give, we have to come from a... Um, like our cup is full, like we have uh, restorative energy. And so creating a prioritization for your own sexy time. And as you said, feeling feminine, like what is it you wear? Have you gotten new bras lately? You know, bras and underwear or um, some lingerie or negligee. What helps you to feel sexy? And try to embody that all day long. Because I always say that um, you know, when we think about turning ourselves on for sex, ideally we're turning ourselves on 24 seven. Um, and we're sort of living from that ignited place. Right. Um, but it starts with the intention. It starts with prioritization. I would say picking up some, um, romance novels or erotic reading, creating sort of your sexy time, revisiting, um, self-pleasuring, masturbation, you know, bringing orgasms back online because orgasms for most of us, once the engine gets warm, right, we create some momentum. It, it is more spontaneous, right? Because literally when we have inertia, it's the cold engine, it, it takes more energy to get it started. So if you can start to create the momentum and sort of the flow and the reconnection to feeling sexy in your own life, then you can bring that as a gift to your marriage and your partnership. Because again, it's great that your partner isn't ex expressing distress around it. Yet I too imagine he remembers the, you know, I see, hear this from couples all the time when they don't have sex that often, then they do. They're like, oh, like, why don't we do this more often? And again, it goes back to that inertia piece. So 
yes, get sexy as a priority, reclaim your feminine, own it and empower yourself. As I say, keep your inner sexy pilot light on and then figure out fun, pleasurable ways to bring that to your husband. As always, can't wait to hear how it goes. I love what she said about the value of recalling when you did feel turned on and excited about sex and keeping that sexy pilot light on. Both seem so helpful. Now for that special invite from Dr. Megan and her husband. So it's the day before Valentine's Day, and I think a perfect gift for yourself or your partner is taking advantage of a complimentary ticket to join a league of extraordinary couples where you're going to learn from 20 of today's best experts on how to take your relationship from ordinary to extraordinary. The program started on February 4th, and I really hope you register today to hear my interview with my husband, David, that comes out on the 20th. As a little teaser to that interview, here's David sharing some thoughts. Regular listeners will recognize Megan and the wisdom that she brings to helping people live their best lives. Having lived more than 20 years together through both ups and downs, I share some of our personal experiences about how we bring our different selves together to be greater than we possibly could individually. To register, go to today's show notes at augustmclaughlin.com for the link or reach out to Megan directly at greatlifegreatsex.com and she'll send you the link personally. How fun was that? I hope many of you will sign up for the series. I plan to take Megan and Dave's segment in for sure. If you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along on Spotify and iHeartRadio. And I really appreciate reviews if anything strikes you. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com. 